Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So sometimes our faith is bolstered by the people who are around us, and other times the people around us can hold us back, and we realize that we need to kind of break away from them. I have known uh, a number of people who have some, some really dramatic breakaway faith stories. Uh, one of them is a couple that Sherry and I knew when we lived in Lancaster County. They grew up Amish. They were born into Amish families. And in their late teens, they came to a, a saving faith in, in Christ, such that for, for them, it was very different from the way they had been raised. I'm sure there's others who could continue in the Amish um, community, but for them, they knew they needed to leave the Amish community in order to follow Jesus. And that didn't sit very well with their families. They were actually shunned, like shunning is a real thing. They, they lost their relationship with their families. We, just, we experienced this a few weeks ago when we were in Lebanon talking with people who are Muslim background believers who have come to faith in Christ. Most of the time, that means you're going to have to break away from your family in order to follow Christ. And to the point where many of those parents would say to their children, um, I no longer have a son. I no longer have a daughter. And they, they completely broke off relationship with them. Maybe your story is not quite that dramatic, but, but maybe there's an aspect of your faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is just different from your family and, or, or some peers. Maybe you have discovered over the years that you can't keep running with the same crowd and you have to break away from that if you're going to really follow Jesus with your whole heart. And that's, that's hard. That's a difficult place to be. Sometimes following Jesus requires us to break away from our family or from peers to be fully committed followers of him. That's what our mission as a church is, is to help more people become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. And what that means is we give our whole life to him. We, we follow him with everything. And sometimes that doesn't fit with some of the, the groups that we've been part of previous to that. Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Those are, those are challenging words from, from Jesus. And, and some of you may be right at that point of facing that choice. Maybe you're wrestling with, maybe you're recognizing what it means to follow Jesus, that he's calling you into something that's going to require a lifestyle change or giving up old habits, giving up old stomping grounds, and you're going to have to move away. You're going to have to break away from a group of people that you've become very comfortable with. And that, that can be very hard because it's hard to lose something that you know well in order to follow someone that you don't yet know very well. And so today we're, we're going to see three real-life examples 
of people who, who had to break away from the groups of people that they were associated with in order to place their trust in Christ. And for those of you who may be on that point of, of making a decision, I hope that you will find encouragement for your own journey in what we look at here this morning. If you take a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We will be looking today at the most intense experience of Jesus' Passion Week. So if you've been with us, just a recap over the last number of weeks, we saw Jesus arrive at uh, Jerusalem. We saw him celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples and infuse uh, an entirely new meaning into the Passover meal. He said it's, it's not that you're looking back anymore to what God did back in Egypt. I want you to now look at me. I want you to look at me as the fulfillment of this. It was radical. And then we saw him engage in victorious prayer. And I've I've gotten so many comments after that message of of how that landed on people, how you were inspired by Jesus' victorious prayer that I just want to remind us, because I think this is an important thing to be reminded about in life, that that. Spiritual victory is not about getting what I want. Victorious prayer is not about getting what I want. It's about doing what God wants. And so Jesus in the garden came 100% intentional. And he was, to to prayer, he pulled away even from his his closest followers to pray just one-on-one with God. He was 100% honest. Father, this is difficult. If there's some other way, I would love for this to pass, this cup to pass from me. But he was 100% yielded in the end to do what God wanted him to do. So uh, that prayer prepared him to walk victoriously then through the unjust trials that we saw last week, four trials, and then today his undeserved execution. So last week, we ended with the crowd on the verge of a riot, and that's where we'll pick it up in verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Their demand was crucify Jesus. Verse 25, so Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. That was Barabbas, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Verse 26, as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. I want to pause here for for a second to highlight the fact that Jesus needed help carrying his cross, which isn't a surprise if we understand that the precursor to crucifixion was a severe flogging. So the Romans would would take the the person destined for crucifixion and they would flog him with a whip that wasn't just a leather whip. Into those, those leather pieces, they would tie pieces of metal, pieces of bone, so that when the whip landed on a bare back, and I'm sorry, this is kind of graphic, but we just need to understand what Jesus went through for us. When it landed on a bare back, it would lodge into the skin, and then when they pulled it away, it would pull flesh away. So there was, there was intense bleeding happening. And so we can understand that by the point, by the time it's time for Jesus to take a crossbeam on his back and walk it on the Via Dolorosa to go to the hill of, of Calvary, we can understand that he's lost a lot of blood. He's very weak. And so they need to find someone to help him carry that cross. 
verse 27, there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And I'll just pause here and and say that um, in Jesus' day, they would actually hire people as professional mourners. We don't know if these women were grieving, mourning, legitimately or sincerely, or they may have just been hired to come out there because there were people that just came and and kind of did this professional mourning. We really don't know, but here's how Jesus responds to their lament. Verse 28, turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? If they do these things, if the Romans do these things, if you're you're mourning for me, he says, um, you, you think this is bad. If the Romans will do this to me, what is going to happen later when it's dry? And he's making a reference to the the judgment on Jerusalem that is coming, that he's repeatedly been calling people to recognize that God's judgment is coming and you should repent. You you should repent. And, And so even, this is amazing to me, like even in the midst of Jesus' agony, he is thinking about others and he's still calling them to repentance. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. I just want to pause here for a second. Again, I'm sorry, there's just so much to bring out in in this passage, but um, the way Luke writes this is it just, it just bespeaks that this, this is true. I mean, this is historically reliable. If you, if you read other accounts of ancient history, and uh, not that I read a ton of them, but sometimes it's not uncommon to read an account of ancient history about a significant event and find that it is it's kind of blown up. It's kind of, um, you know, lots of details, even lots of times embellishment, because this is, I mean, what we're reading is the, the text and the, the, the account that is going to fuel the church. I mean, this, this is going to give birth to the church. And so this is a significant event. And it would be natural, we could kind of understand if he's kind of embellishing it and and saying, man, you know, let me give you a a lot of detail. And Luke just doesn't do that. It's just very matter of fact. It's kind of minimalist. And he just says, there they crucified him. There's a lot packed into that word, crucified. And we're going to unpack some of that on Friday night, as Steve mentioned. But I want to just unpack a couple of things here this morning. Again, it's it's disturbing to think about, but it's it's the reality of what Jesus was willing to, to go through. Historians tell us that crucifixion is the cruelest and most barbaric punishment ever, ever devised in, in history. And at the center of the event was the fact that it was public because Rome wanted to make a point. They, they, wanted to, they wanted to discourage other people from doing whatever it was that this person was being punished for. They particularly loved to 
uh, put to death those who were trying to rise up against the Roman government, those who were guilty of insurrection. Rome, Rome said, if you cross us, we will put you on a cross. And they wanted that out along public roads where people are going to see it because they wanted to deter other people from doing the same thing. What, what people died of from crucifixion was a, a variety of, of things. You could die from bleeding out because they're not, you, you had the flogging ahead of time, and then when you got to the crucifixion, they put the spikes through your, your wrists and through your feet, so there's a lot of blood, so you could simply bleed out and die from that. You might die from exposure. Um, it was pretty typical that a crucifixion would take multiple days. It would take multiple days for the person to die. Jesus actually happened pretty quickly. So if you're hanging there, for example, in the winter, with, with no covering, you're completely exposed, then you might die from that. You could die even from frostbite. If neither of those killed you, then eventually you're going to die from asphyxiation. You're, you're going to, um, you're not going to be able to breathe anymore, suffocation. And so the, the position that crucifixion took was such that you could not breathe. You couldn't, you couldn't get a, a full breath. So in order to get a breath, you had to push up to, to fill your lungs. And of course, every time you pushed up, you had excruciating pain from the spikes that are in your feet. So you, eventually you have to make a choice. <laughs> and eventually you just get tired. You're just like, I can't, I can't push up anymore. And so then you, you die of suffocation. And Luke, in minimalist words, says... That's what happened to Jesus. There they, that was Jesus' fate. There they crucified him, even though he was innocent, which Luke made very clear last week. And here's what's even more amazing. Um, in the midst of Jesus' torture, he is still so full of grace. Verse 35, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, I, I can't imagine what my response would be in, in those moments, but I'm sure it would be more along the lines of condemnation, anger. Jesus is giving grace. Father, forgive them. They don't realize the significance of what they're doing. So that's the crucifixion event that is happening. Now, I want you to pay attention because what we see next is kind of the, the heart of what we're looking at here this morning. Verse 35, the people stood by watching. And, and before I read on, I just want to suggest that I think Luke is painting us into this picture, that we are part of the crowd here standing by watching what's going to happen. And what we are going to see happen now is three different groups of people all responding to Jesus the same way, all saying the same thing to Jesus. So verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers, the religious rulers, scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
You see how they're all, they're all mocking, they're all scoffing, they're all saying the same thing. Why don't, why don't you save yourself if you're so powerful, if you're this Messiah? They're, they're just completely mocking him. Verse 39, uh, the criminal, it says, railed at him. You may have a footnote in your Bible that says he blasphemed. That's actually the, the Greek word there is that the criminal was blaspheming him. And so here again, as with last week, we have groups of people that represent they're representative of all of mankind. We have, we have Jewish people. So uh, they are God's chosen people that he chose to work with and through in a special way. And then we have Gentiles. We have like everybody else outside of that, that Jewish community. We have certainly represented by the Romans. We have power structures represented. We have religious leaders. And we have political leaders. We have the privileged, and we have the punished. We have criminals being crucified. So every group is represented. Every group is saying to Jesus, save yourself. And they're not pleading. They're, they're not praying to him. They're mocking him, and they're fulfilling the words of Psalm 22 that says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. I want you to ponder with me for just a moment the incredible indignity and disrespect that Jesus experienced and suffered. I mean, here we have someone who was willing to give up his place of privilege at the right hand of the Father in heaven and come to a very broken earth with very broken people who, instead of embracing him, rejected him and mocked him. And all he did throughout all of his life was, was to do the things of the most beautiful person in the world could do, which is to love in response to hate, to heal, to bring healing in the midst of, of brokenness. And this is the kind of response that he gets. I mean, blasphemy really is the right word here. So all of these groups, all of these people representative of humanity, they're all headed in the same direction. It's, it's kind of like it's a river of humanity carried along by, by the current. But then Luke introduces us to three people who break away from the current. They get, they get out of the river and they do something different. The first is one of the criminals, verse 40. The other criminal rebuked the first, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him today, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. See, the criminal is the first this day to demonstrate breakaway faith. And breakaway faith recognizes and responds who Jesus is. Breakaway faith recognizes and responds to who Jesus is. Not to what the people around them are doing, what our peers are doing, or what our family is doing. Our, it, it focuses directly on Jesus and responds to him. So this criminal recognizes that Jesus is different 
that number one, he's innocent, but there's something beyond his, his innocence. Verse 42, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, this is, this is remarkable. This is a remarkable statement because, I mean, here, this, this man is next to him, hanging on a cross, dying, and he still recognizes him as king. I, I realize, like, there's an inscription over his head that says this is the king, but there is nothing about the circumstances right now that would indicate that Jesus is actually a king, and yet he obviously believes it. And so sometimes you and I have to break away from our circumstances Sometimes we have to break away from our companions to follow Jesus. Sometimes we have to break away from our circumstances because there's nothing about what's going on in our life at the moment that reflects the fact that Christ is in charge or that he's got things under control. And so it is a complete act of faith to say, Jesus, I still believe that you're the king. I still believe you're in control, and I still want to follow you. Would you receive me into your kingdom? So the criminal is the first And his breakaway faith would be powerful by itself, but Luke gives us two more examples. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And we could say a lot about the significance of that, but we just don't have time this morning. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So now we have a Roman soldier breaking away. I mean, we just a few moments ago saw a a pack of soldiers mocking Jesus. And we know that soldiers know how to mock. And so this centurion is breaking away from that pack and saying, I recognize that this man is is innocent. This is actually the fifth statement of Jesus' innocence in this chapter. Pilate said it three times. The criminal said it on the cross, and the centurion now says he surely he was innocent. And so this centurion's declaration is going to open him up to mocking from his peers, and we know that they know how to mock, but he's so moved by what he's seen that he can't help himself, and he expresses Uh, He's looking at Christ and not his companions to form his response. There's one last example of breakout faith. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. That was a Jewish sign of grief and, and mourning. And all his acquaintances, all of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. That's the the council of religious leaders who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So Joseph represents our our third group, the religious leaders who had scoffed at at Jesus. I want you to just think about the risk that Joseph is facing here. I mean, all of his companions have voted. They, They were coming against Jesus to put him to death. 
and he is now dissenting from them. They were condemning him as a false messiah, and here he is giving dignity to Jesus' body. And why? Verse 51 tells us the answer. Because he was looking for the kingdom of God. Again, someone who, even in the face of circumstances, that would say, this man is no king, he's dead. He's still looking for the kingdom. He's looking beyond the opinions of his peers to Christ. Because breakaway faith recognizes and responds to who Jesus is. Early in this scene, we saw that Luke... Luke paints us into the crowd who is watching. And so then we see these three groups of people scoffing and mocking and blaspheming Jesus. And the question to us is, will you and I be carried along and with that current and mock Jesus too? I just have to point out Luke's brilliant authorship here, what we see um, as we got into this passage, as we see him introducing these three groups in order, the religious rulers, the soldiers, and then the criminal. Of course, the criminals are the closest to Jesus right there on the cross. And so he introduces these groups to us, and then he goes in reverse order as he calls out these people who are breaking out of each of these groups, the criminal who differs with his companion, the centurion who's breaking out from these soldiers, and then Joseph who's breaking out from the religious leaders. And so the question to us is, will we look beyond the current of our circumstances or the current of our companions to look at Jesus himself and base our faith on who he is, maybe even in spite of what our circumstances might tell us? This is the most important question we can answer. Whether you are deciding to place your faith in Jesus for the first time or for the thousand and first time. If you're deciding to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, it could mean a radical change in your life. It could mean that Jesus is calling you to something different, calling you to a different crowd than you have been walking with. You know that if you keep walking with these people and doing the kinds of things that they do, it's going to drag you away from Christ. And so you have to make a decision. And are you willing to follow him in the face of being shunned by these people that mean a lot to you? For others of us, we, we've been following Jesus for a long time. And there are times when Jesus intervenes into our lives and asks us to do something different than what we've been doing. He calls us to another level of obedience to us. And sometimes even the Christ followers around us, it can be really strange to them. Like they can say, wow, you're getting really radical. You're getting really like this sounds weird to me. And sometimes we, even after we've been following Jesus for a long time, have to, have to make a decision again. Am I going to follow Jesus even though it may alienate me from somebody close to me? Will I follow Jesus as my king? Remember what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll save it. That's the inverse economy of, of God's kingdom when we lose our life and, and set aside for his sake, we will save it. That's what Jesus came to do, to save us. Ironically, he came to do the exact thing that the people were mocking him about. Save yourself and, and us. 
But it was hard for our friends here in Luke 23 to see that that was what he was all about at the moment, which makes their faith remarkable. I mean, it would be understandable if everybody walked away from Jesus in Luke 23 because they are at that moment just on sensory overload with everything that they have seen in front of us. It's one thing for us to read about the crucifixion and think about the, the things that happened there. That's disturbing enough, but to actually witness it and to see it and someone that you've been walking with for, for years and you thought was the Messiah and now he is dead I mean, they, they don't know yet what's coming in Luke 24. And so those of us who do sometimes still struggle to put our faith in Jesus, their breakaway faith is so incredibly remarkable because all they see at this point is a corpse and a tomb. Verse 53, Joseph took the body down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Let me give you a little history as we close here this morning. Jewish burial in the first century had two stages. looked very, very different from, from what we practice today. The first stage of burial for, for the Jewish people was that they would wrap the body, they would embalm it, they would put spices on it, and they would put it inside of a tomb that was actually designed to be a shared tomb. And so they would prepare the body and they would put it into one of these alcoves knowing that later on another family member would pass and they would be added to another of these alcoves. That's why the spices were so important because if you didn't really treat the body with spices, you know somebody else is coming in there later just to be blunt. I mean, it's going to smell really bad. So the spices were really, really vital for this. And see, because the tombs were designed this way, this is why it's significant that Luke makes this note in verse 53. They laid him in a tomb where no one had ever yet been laid. This was a new tomb that hadn't been used, which is significant later, and I don't want to give too much away, but this is significant later because we didn't want multiple bodies in this room and trying to figure out which one was, was Jesus. There, no one had ever been in this tomb yet. So the first stage was that they were left in here um, until their body decomposed until their flesh decomposed and all that was left was a skeleton. And someone would come back months later, maybe years later, however long that process took, and they would gather up the bones and they would put it into a small box called an ossuary. And the honestly, the family bones would be stored in this ossuary. And one of the reasons they did this is because their space to bury people in that part of the world is very limited. So they had to just be efficient, to be honest. And so that was normally the process. You would place the body in the tomb, you would roll a stone over the front of it, and no one would see it again for probably for years or until somebody else came to be buried in that space again. So Jesus' body, under normal circumstances, would have been just left there, and nobody would have been back for quite a while. But here's where God is so much fun, because he timed all of this so that the women would have to come back. Um, verse 54, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, and how his body was laid. Sorry, this just, this just gets me. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. 
On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. God designed all of this so that the Sabbath would come and they would be interrupted in their work and could not finish their spices so that they would have to come back. They don't know what happens yet in Luke 24, so all they can do for Sabbath is wait. And so that's what we're going to do. And then we will pick it up next Sunday. Steve's already kind of blown it a little bit and, and uh, been a spoiler. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes to feel the hopelessness, the disappointment. They're going to come back next Sunday, and we'll see what they find and what they don't find. Father, thank you for the examples of those who have breakaway faith. We take inspiration from them because you call us to break away from the life that we have been in before. Even, even the picture that we had of that this morning in baptism is we are, we are dying to our prior life and we are being raised to a new life. And sometimes that doesn't sit well with the, the people that we have been with and we have to choose if we're going to follow you or if we're going to stay with, that, with our companions. Lord, give us courage to, to follow you, whatever the cost. Give us courage to recognize who you are, even despite circumstances at times. Sometimes we, we need to break away from our circumstances to recognize that you're still in charge, even though everything around us says that that's not the case. So help us, Lord, to trust in you, to follow you, as these folks did. And thank you that that's not the end of the story. We look forward to celebrating next week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.